Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. We'll actually be finishing up chapter number 12 and then going into, we're not going to go into tonight, but we'll be going into next over the next weeks, chapter number 13 and the end of the book of Hebrews. And I'm not going to spoil where we're going next. So, sorry. But we've got one more chapter left in the book of Hebrews. And what the author is doing in this section, and to be 100% transparent, when I came to this section, I had no idea what he was doing. It, it took reading over and reading after a few different people to kind of get a grasp to what his point in this last section was. Because... Towards the last parts of the book of Hebrews, what we end up seeing is concluding arguments. And these concluding arguments don't always make sense when they stand alone. But that's what we have a tendency to do is to make them try and stand alone. There are key verses even in the book of, or in chapter number 13, that we have taken as standalone verses. But what, again, what the author is doing here is he is concluding his argument to these Hebrew people. He will, he will basically apply everything, but he's concluding the reason that Christ is better. He's concluding the reason that the new covenant is better. And he's giving them, so to speak, the last thrust to endure. The last fuel, so to speak. He's putting the last fuel in their vehicle of endurance by, again, driving home the purpose that he wrote this letter to them. So in Hebrews chapter number 12, verse number 25, and again, we'll read down through verse number 29, the author writes, See that ye refuse him, if you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escaped not, who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn him away that speaketh from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth? But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. That's the end of verse number 29. And again, if, if you caught what the author was saying when I read down through this, I applaud you. Because even reading down through it myself now, 
it doesn't seem to make sense with what he has just been talking about. But to tie it to what we've just been talking about, I think we need to look and remember what we have been talking about. To kind of recap everything, we were in chapter number 11. We saw all of these people who, by faith, endured. Ultimately, that was the purpose of the author. He said, all of these people that you look to, that you remember, that were written about in the Old Testament, written about in your scriptures, they all kept going. They all endured by faith. So we get to chapter number 12, and he reminds them that because of this great cloud of witnesses, because of all of these people who kept going by faith, you run the race, and you run it by faith. And he tells them you will do this by looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. He tells them, as you're doing this, lay aside all of the things that would cause you to stumble. Lay aside all of the things that would hinder you from running, that you may run the race. He tells us that in running the race, God has put up guardrails of correction to keep us heading towards the direction in which we're running. And that this correction, although it doesn't seem joyous at the time, is necessary. He says when you're going through this race, when you're exercising these things, when you're enduring correction, make sure you look around you and look at those who are weak, who are stumbling, who are having trouble running the race themselves, and remind them along with yourselves that you're headed somewhere better. Don't stop running yourself. Remember where you're going. Don't let a brother or a sister stop running. Remind them where they're going. Again, he says that there in verses 12 and 13. He says to make straight the feeble knees. Basically, if somebody's knees are weak, help them. Don't kick them. Don't run them to them with the car. Help them. He gives more instruction. He says, I want you in all of this race, I want you to follow, run after peace. Your purpose in running, again, is not to kick the knees out of the guy beside of you who seems to be running almost as well as you are, but to pursue peace. And to continue in sanctification because that is the road on which you're running. You're running on a road of sanctification, so continue running towards that road. Ricky covered that section there where he says, remember to look diligently while you're running and you're following sanctification and you're remembering where you're going and you're being corrected, but you're looking to Jesus while you're doing all this. Look again diligently. Be diligent to continue focusing in the right direction so that you're not distracted. Again, the author was saying, lay aside the things that will distract you. And while I'm telling you all of this, don't forget, don't be distracted. Keep looking. Then in verse number 18, which is what we covered last week, through verse number 24, he reminds them that there is a distinction in the way, in the direction, in the mode that they're running. 
He's saying you're not running towards a mountain that your fathers ran away from. He said you're running towards a new mountain, Mount Zion, the mountain where you looked to for the promises and you looked to for the earthly kingdom. You are now running towards the promised one and his heavenly kingdom. So he makes this distinction between us being governed or running in the mode or by the ability of the law and instead running by the mode or the ability of the gospel. The vehicle that we are enduring in now is different than the vehicle that was given to the fathers that they could not get to where they were going in. They were given the law. They couldn't get there in the law. You know this because we've gone through the whole book that explained that to us. He says, you're in a new vehicle now. You are going to Zion and you're going to Zion via the gospel. And he tells them that, concluding with the fact that what you're going to is not just the new kingdom, but in verse number 24, you are going to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, whose blood doesn't speak for revenge. It doesn't speak to be coming against you. It speaks for you. It speaks to your redemption. So he covers all of this, and then he gives them again a little piece of application at the end of what we have for chapter number 12. Because of all of this, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. And what the author has done here, just in that short little phrase, is reminding them what the gospel actually is. Think back to the gospels. Every time that you hear the voice of God coming from heaven, what does he say? At the baptism, at the transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son. And what is his command? Hear ye him. God says, this is my son. Listen to him. Believe him. Trust him. Hear what he is saying and take it into account in your life. And the author says that here. He says, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. Don't refuse Jesus. Don't refuse the mediator. He's telling them, you didn't, you've not come to the mountain of Sinai. You have come to the mountain of Zion and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Don't refuse the one that is speaking the gospel to you now. He tells them why. For if they escaped not who refused him that spake on earth... Much more shall not we escape if we turn away him that speaketh from heaven. Now remember back a few verses. When the people came to Mount Sinai, what did they say? When God was speaking. Again, let's, let's, let's put all of this together. He says, there were some that, that did not escape that refused him that spake on earth. If we go back, what were they doing? When they came to Mount Sinai, they said what? They refused 
the one who spake on earth. They said, don't, God, don't talk to us anymore. We can't listen to what you are saying. We don't have the ability to hear what you're saying to us. The proof was kind of in the pudding, to be honest, because not only did they have the ability not to hear, they said, we don't want to hear. And then when they sent Moses to go hear, they went and did their own thing anyway. And those people who refused those things, what does the Bible said happened to them? They died in the wilderness. They died. As a matter of fact, earlier in the book of Hebrews, the author tells us that their carcasses laid in the dust. He doesn't just say they passed away. He said literally their carcasses are laying on the ground. He treated them in the same way that we would think about roadkill. They didn't escape. He says if they didn't escape when they refused God speaking on earth, how are you going to escape now that we have someone who has entered with his blood into the majesty on high and is now sitting as king over everything. And we're going to get into this kingdom idea here in a minute. But he says, just in case I haven't been clear, over the entirety of this whole epistle, your fathers who said, I don't want to hear the law, and, I, and didn't keep the law, didn't escape. If they didn't escape from the worst thing, How will you escape if you neglect, if you push away, if you refuse the better thing? They didn't escape when God came down to speak the law on Mount Sinai, to speak it on earth. How much more will we not escape from him that speaks it in heaven? As I was reading John Owen's commentary on this section of scripture, he tied this whole verse up into that first section where it says, Refuse not him that speaketh. He said, What will damn us is refusing Christ. Refusing him that speaketh will damn us. That's all we have. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He said, If Christ isn't resurrected, if we don't have that, we have nothing. The author of Hebrews says, don't refuse him that speaketh. Verse number 26, he says, whose voice then shook the earth. Remember, again, kind of call back into your mind Mount Sinai. It says that the voice, and this is right up here in this other section of Scripture, right above that we read last week. It says that there were Fire, lightnings, earthquakes, thunders. The earth shook. Again, if you don't believe me, go read the verses right before this. Whose voice then shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not the earth, only but heaven Also, 
again, this is where I had a lot of trouble trying to figure out what in the world he was saying. He's like, what do you mean he shook the earth once and he's going to shake the heaven also? Without getting into all the other theological implications, call your mind the, the book of Revelation. There's a scene that John describes. He says they're there. There's this scroll or this book that is sealed up that nobody can open. It says they search over heaven trying to find somebody to open the book. John does anyway. There's other people there who were clued in on what was going on. And he sits down and starts to cry. One of the elders come by and say, John, why are you crying? This has been taken care of. He said he saw a lamb as had been slain from the foundation of the world. Yes. That lamb was given the book because he was the only one who could open it. But in this whole scene, if you'll go back and read it, there was a section where heaven is silent. Now take that, remember that, and I want you to go back to the gospel accounts. During the crucifixion, there was a space, the Bible said, a space of silence on the earth. What happened? There were earthquakes on the earth. What the author is doing here is he is putting together what he had just talked about in the form of Mount Sinai and Mount Zion and saying that God, whose voice shook the earth, has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also the heavens. He came and he dwelt, he dealt with a certain people in the wilderness. The earth shook. He gave them the law. But he promised. This same one who gave the law promised that he would shake the earth one more time. He would come and speak one more time. How did he speak then? At the culmination of that speaking... He didn't say, if you do this, you will live, and if you don't do this, you will die. He said, in Greek, one word. In English, three words. It is finished. He promised to speak one more time, and he did. He gave the gospel. The author is saying, don't refuse him that speaketh. Don't refuse Christ. Don't refuse the promise. Don't run back to Mount Sinai because you've been given Mount Zion. Don't try and hold on to the law because you have been given the gospel. And there are other books in the New Testament that explain to us that you cannot hold with one hand one side and the other hand the other side. Either we can grasp on to the law and prove that we can't carry it, or we can throw ourselves at the mercy of the gospel. We know this because the author continues and he says exactly that. 
He promised that he would one more time shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. Verse number 27, it says, And this word yet once more signifieth. Basically, what the author is saying right there is, let me explain this phrase. Let me explain what I just said. The removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Again, to, to put all of this into a way that it is understood, the author is saying, He gave you the law. The earth shook. But he promised that he would speak one more time. Only the earth wouldn't just shake, but heaven would also. He says, let me explain. Let me phrase this in a way that you can understand. Let me put this into real terms for you. He says he did this to remove everything that could be removed so that what was left was the things that could not be removed. To try and illustrate this, and this is the only thing that I could think of, my, my children, for whatever reason, have been tasked over the past weeks, each of them in different ways, but all of them have been tasked over the past weeks with building dioramas. I agitated to them with this to no end by misunderstanding the word. Again, it's, it's, it's irrelevant, but it was fun for me to agitate them. It was fun for me to aggravate them. I've said before, John said in 1 John that he had no greater joy than to see that his children walked in truth. I said, a close second is to aggravate your children. It's good to see them walk in truth. Close second is to be able to aggravate them. But this dioramas that they had, Rhett's, he made sure, was secure. So Reese's, he kind of put things in there and set it up. Well, when Reese got to school, his diorama was messed up because he did not secure the things in the diorama. So there was stuff all over the place. Reagan, same thing. Rhett, everything was glued down. Everything. And if you know my kids, you know that that is exactly in line with their personalities. Rhett is the most peculiar of all of my children. He is the most adamant that things have to be done in a particular way. So everything in his was secured. So when Rhett gets his diorama to school, guess what? Nothing moved. Everything was exactly where he put it. When Reese gets his diorama to school, things moved. It's not all where he put it. What the author is explaining here is that God spoke the gospel so that when things are shaken, when this box, this diorama is turned upside down, it'll get rid of everything that wasn't secured. But what does the text say? Those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Yes. 
God has done this. And we're going to get into the purpose here in just a second, right in the next verse. But God has given again the gospel so that something will remain. And in a sense, the author is saying, again, if you've not gotten the point yet, Hebrew people, if you want to remain when God shakes the box, hold on to the gospel. You cannot carry Mount Sinai. You refused it. And even if you want it, when God turns everything upside down, that will not remain. But he's given something. He spoke again in a way that shook the heavens and shook the earth. And he spoke again that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. read the book of Psalms, read throughout the whole Old Testament, there is one thing that God says will stand forever. His word. And he wasn't talking about the copy of 66 books that we have. When the scriptures talk about the statutes and the promises and the words of God, it's talking about his promises, what he has said will happen. We have a record of what he said in the scriptures, but he wasn't saying that this book that you have is what will stand. He's saying my promises will stand. That's why I won't be shaken. And again, Read back in the previous verse if, if, if this isn't making sense. If I'm not conveying this in a way that is understandable, but he hath promised. We're looking at this promise of the gospel, and this promise was given so that when everything is shaken, it will remain. And God, all throughout the entirety of scriptures, has promised that when the world goes away, his word will stand forever. If you want to grab hold of something that will allow you to remain, grab hold to the promise of God. Not merely the law of God, but the promise of God in His Son. And all this has a purpose. Verse number 28. Wherefore, so because the reason for all of this Wherefore, we receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. Because we are receiving the kingdom of God. Let us have grace. Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. He's saying the whole purpose of this, and we've got the beginning of the redemptive story to the end in these handful of verses. The whole reason for all of this was that God would renew his kingdom and we would be a part of it. God would give us more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Some of the parables may start to make sense when you grasp what the author is saying here. 
What is what does Jesus say? He gives a parable about wheat and tares. I challenge you to go read it. He says there was a field. The enemy comes, sows tares in with the wheat. And then the master says to his servants, y'all go pluck out all of the, all the weeds. Go get them all out. We got to weed all of them out because we got to have a pure harvest. It's not what he says. It's not what he says at all. He tells the servants, because that's what the servants want to do. They say, master, we're going to go out there. We're going to pull up all the tares. We're going to get them all up. We'll do it. But the master says, no. Let them grow together. When the harvest comes, we'll burn the tares and we'll take the wheat to the storehouse. And then Jesus says, such is the kingdom of God. This kingdom that is being received is being received through the mode of the gospel. And again, the author of Hebrews is saying, if you want to grab hold of the law, when the harvest comes, you will be removed. If you want to grab hold of a different way, then God has promised you. Fine. But you will be removed. If you think that there's a better way, Go with that. That's what Joshua said. He said, if you want to serve the other gods, then by all means, serve the other gods. The author's saying, if you want to do that, then go do it. But when the kingdom comes, if you want to remain, if you want to still be here, grab hold of the gospel. Throw yourself at the mercy of Christ. He's not just saying that in application, though. He's telling them, just like he told them in chapter number 10, when he says, those of you who don't believe, don't miss Christ. You're in the assembly, but you don't believe. Don't miss Christ. He says that in chapter number 6. In chapter number 10, he says, those of you who are in the assembly and don't believe, don't drift away. Don't fall back. Don't, Don't pull back. But in chapter number 6, and then again in chapter number 10, he makes statements. In chapter number 10, he says, But you are not of the ones that draw back, speaking to the believers. And here, again, he's saying to those who are still trying to figure it out, who are part of the assembly that think that, well, maybe maybe we could go back. Maybe there's a better way. I'm not fully sure of this now. I've tasted of the heavenly gift, but I'm not taking it for my own. I've not really believed him that spake. To those of you who have not believed, believe, or else you will not remain. But again, verse number 28, he does not say, maybe you believe, maybe you haven't. He says, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. He says, to those of you who believe, guess what? It's getting better. We're going to receive a kingdom which cannot be moved. It's not Adam this time. Adam's not going to be the one who sins and gets rid of the kingdom. It's not Abraham this time. He's not going to lie 
and miss out on the promises. It's not David this time. It's not all of your fathers this time who over and over and over failed and failed and failed and lost the kingdom and lost the kingdom and lost the kingdom. We've received a kingdom in the gospel through Christ which cannot be moved. He's like, you've been looking for this kingdom. Your fathers have been looking for this over the past 4,000 years. And every time they thought they had it, it was moved. Every time they thought they had a savior who could do it, that savior fell. Every time they put their eggs in one basket, that basket dropped and all the eggs broke. We in Christ have received a kingdom which he don't just say won't be moved, cannot be moved. And then he tells us what to do with that knowledge. Real quickly, let me let me let me grab a quote from John Owen's commentary. In speaking of this kingdom, of this gospel kingdom, he said, of this kingdom. Christ is the king. The gospel is the law. Those who believe are the subjects. The spirit is the administrator and grace is the currency. And I say that because we're getting ready to cover the application of this kingdom. In pointing out this new kingdom, he was saying that Christ is the king. He's a better king. The gospel is the law. Gospel is a way better. Not saying the gospel is the law as in we obey the gospel in order to receive, but the law is that we receive when we don't deserve. Believers are the subjects. The spirit is the administrator and grace is the currency. And in that understanding, verse number 28, he says, because we have a kingdom that cannot be moved, what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do now? It's simple. Let us keep up our standards real high. Let us talk about how we're better than everybody else. Let us make sure we're doing better than the next guy. Let us point out why all these people running the race with us are stupid. He doesn't say any of that. He gives us one job. Let us have grace. We've been given grace in this new kingdom. As John Owen said, grace is the currency of this kingdom. Because we've received a kingdom that cannot be moved, let us have grace. This grace is the way that we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It's so simple. We're not in this kingdom life. We're not given a ton of these rules and regulations that we must live by in order to have an acceptance before our new king. We're just told, have grace. Why? Because that's what you've been shown. Yes, yes. When your family treats you bad, have grace because you treated God bad and he had grace with you. When your friends treat you the wrong way, have grace. 
Because you treated God the wrong way and He had grace with you. When your enemies hate you, have grace because you were an enemy of God and He had grace with you. This is a new kingdom. It's a new understanding. It is a grace-based system. This is how you serve God acceptably, with reverence and godly fear. And just so you don't forget, if you want to go back to the other way again, and you want to serve God under a different way than He has given you, through a different kingdom that He has given you, the author gives us here a call back to Deuteronomy chapter number 4, Verse number 24 and Isaiah 33, chapter number 14, or Isaiah chapter number 33 and verse number 14. Where God shows what worship, what happens to worship that isn't what and done the way he said to do it. If you want to go back again, that's fine, but you're not, when the kingdom is shaking, you're going to fall out. He says, for our God is a consuming Fire. The reason that we serve God with grace, the reason that we have grace with others, is because God has said, This is how, whereby we may serve God acceptably. If you want to serve God acceptably, you have grace with others because you're part of a new kingdom with reverence and godly fear. Our God is a consuming fire. If we don't do it the way that he said to do it, we're not keeping it. God isn't going to accept any other way than the way that he is put forth in this new kingdom. Right. You're not going to be the ambassador of his kingdom by the rules and regulations of another kingdom. If someone is sent as an ambassador of the United States, he does not follow the rules and regulations of the ambassador from Zimbabwe. Or else he's going to get fired. And without being punny, the same thing's going to happen to those who try and serve God a different way. Who try to serve God through the mode of a different kingdom. They will be fired. Yeah. Our God is a consuming fire. He's not going to accept any other way than the way that he has laid out. And the author has taken this section of scripture here to point us back to the same place that the scriptures point us back to over and over and over and over and over and over again. And just in case you don't know who that is, let's go back to verse 24. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks a better thing than that of Abel. To summarize all of what the author said here, to the Hebrew people and to us, Jesus is better. He's created a better way. If you don't buck the better way, then fine. But if you, don't, if you don't grab hold of the better way, there's worse results. Yes. That is, that's what the author is 
conveying to them. And he will explain this as we move into chapter number 13. Because the very, 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 very next verse, he says, let brotherly love continue. And he'll say things just like that as he wraps up this epistle. If you are believing, take heart. You've received a new kingdom. It's coming. It's here and it's coming. That kingdom won't be moved to have grace with other people. If you're not believing, don't refuse him that speaketh. Don't push away the one who brought the better promise because there's no hope there. Nothing ends good there. Let's pray.